my goodness. Jesus Christ is awesome, isn't he? He's awesome. He's the Lord of everything. He changes lives. Thank you, choir, musicians, for using your gifts and abilities to lead us in worship. And just another reminder how awesome Jesus Christ is. And you know what's such a big deal is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, 100% God, 100% man, the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us, many different names for Jesus Christ. He invites us to follow him. And that's amazing. And he invites us to share his love story. I call it the greatest love story in the universe. The gospel, the good news about who he is and what he's done and how he can change your life. He invites us to share that with hurting lost people all over the world, starting right here. And I'm glad somebody loved me enough as a young boy to share his story with me. We've been in a journey through the Gospel of Luke, studying through the book, the letter of Luke, and we saw in the first two chapters, chapter 1 and chapter 2, the why. Why did Luke even write this letter to his friend to start with? And the why, he tells us there in chapter 1, was to show that the Christian faith that Jesus Christ, his claims, were certain and true. They could be tested because it's a historical fact. It has internal evidence and external evidence. There's fulfilled promises, fulfilled prophecies hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. There's eyewitness reports. Christian claimed Jesus Christ, what he said, is a verifiable fact. Therefore, it can be tested and therefore it can be trusted. We saw that in chapter one and two, the why. And then in chapter three, we see the who. Okay, Jesus, why he did, why this letter was written to show that Jesus Christ is certain and true. He is who he said he is. And then chapter three is the who. Well, then really, who is Jesus? And we see John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus, the Messiah. And we see after his baptism, there in chapter three, verse 22, God says, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And then we see the genealogy of Jesus right after that. And at the end of that, saying, Jesus is the Son of God. And so we see who he is in chapter 3. Then we move to chapter 4. And we see that Jesus Christ is immediately tempted by Satan after he came out publicly. This is his public ministry beginning now, a high point in his life. And now Satan comes after him to tempt him. And he responds to that temptation with perfect, perfect interpretation and obedience to the word of God. Every time Satan came after him to attack him, he attacked back with the word of God. So for the first three and a half chapters in Luke, we see that Jesus Christ is certain and true, which is exactly why Luke wrote this letter to start with. Chapter 1, verse 4, he wrote it so that you may know the certainties of the things that you have been taught. Last week, we're in chapter 4, beginning with verse 14 through 44, and now we see the what. We see why. We saw who is Jesus. Now, what did he come to do? And we see a snapshot of what Jesus came to do. And so this passage we looked at last week unveils Jesus' mission, his purpose, gives us little snapshots of his ministry, his teachings, his miracles, how he interacted with people. And we see that Jesus Christ came to proclaim the good news to proclaim the good news that he is the promised Messiah. He came to forgive us of our sins, make us right with God, give us heaven as our eternal home, to set us free, to give us a new beginning. He brings God's salvation, we see here, to all nations, everybody. He brings those who repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in Christ. He says he comes bringing the kingdom of God. Bottom line, Jesus came to change lives. He changed lives by forgiving us, making us children of God, giving us heaven as our eternal home through faith and trust in Jesus Christ, okay? Now we're in chapter 5, 
All right, why, who, what he come to do? How is he going to do it? That's chapter five. How is he going to do it? How does he change lives? How does he change lives? And, and, and we're going to see too how he wants to use us as followers to help share his story so other lives can be changed. It's just amazing because none of us, myself included, none of us deserve that. And yet he calls us to be his disciple. How does he do it? So that's what we're going to look at here. We see here in chapter five, the calling of his first disciple. His first disciples here. The word disciples, that word disciple means to be a learner, to be a student, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so we see that. We see a disciple that, you know, the, God calls us to be disciples. Our core mission as a church is to be a disciple and make disciples. Matthew 28, verse 19, the Great Commission, where Jesus says, therefore, go into all the world and make disciples, go make disciples of all nations, and then baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So our mission in our church as believers in Jesus Christ is to go, starting right where we're at, and go to the ends of the earth and share with people the gospel of Jesus Christ, how they can be a learner, a student, a follower of Jesus Christ, and then for them to make disciples of others. And so we see a disciple follows Jesus Christ we see a disciple is constantly internally being changed by Christ to become Christ-like. And when you change the heart of a person, it changes the behavior of, of a person. And so a disciple is actually committed to the mission of Christ, sharing his story with others. And so following a Christian is not about following rules. You hear me probably a lot say Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And that's what I mean here. I mean, being a Christian isn't about following rules. You can follow all the rules of the church you want to and still not be a believer in Jesus Christ. Being a Christian isn't about following rules. It's about following a person, following Jesus Christ. And following Jesus Christ is ultimately about doing what Jesus did and doing it the way he did it. That means we love the people he loved. We serve the people the way he served people. We do the things that he did. And we strive to copy or replicate his character, his way, and his mission which means we need a life change. He's got to change us first for all this to happen, which is exactly what he does. And so we're going to see that. We're going to see how he changes lives then how he wants to use us when our lives are changed, when we become followers of Jesus Christ to help others follow Christ. That's where we're at, chapter 5. So if you're able, would you please stand with me out of reverence and honor for God's holy word. One day after Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water, and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. 
And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. You may be seated in. The calling of the first disciples, we see how Jesus changes lives. And the first thing, we see how he does it. He does it in totally unexpected ways. We read verses 1 through 3. I mean, Simon, Peter, so Peter is just kind of minding his own business, cleaning his nets, and Jesus walks up and changes his life. Peter had no idea that his whole life was about to change. And that's usually how God works. We're just going about our business, going about our life, and suddenly God intervenes to redirect our steps. They were just washing their nets after a long, hard night of catching no fish. Now, this text we're looking at is the story of how Jesus called Peter to be his disciples. In the beginning of the story, we see, we see Peter, he caught fish. Then we see Jesus catch Peter, and then we see Peter catch people. He became a fisher of men and women and boys and girls. I think it's very appropriate that Jesus went to Peter, who was a fisherman, as his first disciples. Fisherman, blue collar, not a whole lot of education to do it, common folk, dirt under the fingers, hard workers, and fishermen, they know the value of patience and perseverance, which is what it takes to catch men, to be a follower of Christ, to be a fisher of men and women. And it all begins here with a very frustrated fisherman cleaning his nets after a long, hard night. Now notice something, notice the boat, the boat's in every scene, the boat was at the water's edge, right? Jesus preached from the boat. So many people he got in the boat to preach to them from. The miracle, catching all those fish, were performed in the boat. Peter's confession, when he realized who Jesus was and he felt bad about who he was, that happened in the boat. Jesus pulls the boat, I mean, Peter pulls the boat on shore, leaves it behind to follow Jesus. I want you to pay attention to that because the boat represented what? Peter's livelihood, his business. His future, his security, that, that was his life. That's how he made a living. Peter made his boat available to Jesus. He made his career, his livelihood available to Jesus, and Jesus now used it as a platform for ministry, which is important because I think too often as Christians, we separate the secular from the spiritual. We, we separate Christianity from our career. I'll be at church today. But start Monday morning, I ain't talking about it. I ain't even thinking about it. It's about other stuff. I don't need to bring that religion into what I do for a living. But here we see the tools of the fishermen's trade becoming the means by which they followed Christ and made a difference for Christ. Jesus invites the disciples to use the tool of their trade to fish for people, which is so interesting. I want us to think about this. Wherever God has you, school, neighborhood, maybe your stay-at-home mom, wherever you work, your career, the gym, the ball field, wherever God has you, whatever your passion is, what you love to do, how are you using your gifts, your career tools, your trade, your career to follow Jesus Christ? And how are you using that to share his good news to hurting lost people? Because God wants to bring, God wants to use you. Where you're at, there's people, you have a relationship with them. They're listening to you. They might not ever come in here, but you know what? They're listening to you. And if you're a Christian, you're a missionary. You represent Christ. 
That's your mission field. And God wants to use your gifts, your trade, to minister to hurting lost people. That's why we have a, a sports recreation ministry here at church. We got people who have a passion for sports and soccer and basketball and taekwondo and gymnastics. And, and we have all those ministries happening in our gym. In fact, tonight, you, know, you can see about the taekwondo. They're going to do a little demonstration. These are all done by Christians. These are Christian leaders that are trying to reach these kids and adults that have a passion for these things. Sports is a great way to reach people today, to get them on our campus. And these are Christian godly men and women who are trying to point people to Jesus Christ through the use of sports, their passion and their heart. Jesus changes lives in totally unexpected ways. Also, he does it through daily obedience and small things. And just a simple daily obedience and small things. Verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. So we see so far, Jesus asked Peter for use of his boat for kind of a, like a floating pulpit so he could teach the people on the shore. And Peter was just cleaning his nets, so it wasn't that big of a deal. And he said, sure. But that small step of obedience led to the miracle that changed Peter's life. You're never going to know when one of God's great miracles, when one of God's great breakthroughs in your life is just around the corner. And I have found in my life and listening to many other people throughout my life that when those times happen, they're most likely to come as we travel down just that pathway of daily obedience. It's the small things of obedience that make a difference in the long haul. People are always asking me, how can I know God's will for my life? That's a great question. And I really hope you want to know that. I hope you're not just asking that question. Because God's not playing hide and seek with us here. He wants us to know what he made us to do. So he's not going to hide from you. But if you want to know God's will, it's not rocket science. The way to discover God's will for your future is to do what you know God's will is for you right now. You want to be in God's will next week, next month, next year? Then do what God wants you to do today. You do God's will today, you wake up tomorrow, you do what God wants you to do tomorrow, and you're in God's will. And just do what God wants you to do today, and that happens through just daily obedience in the small things. Jesus changes lives in totally unexpected ways through daily obedience in small things, and he really can change your life when you admit that you need him. When you admit that you need him. Simon, you know, verse 5, first part of it, Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. Haven't caught anything. How fitting is it, isn't it? Jesus comes to the scene of Peter's failure, and he used it to preach the word of God. I mean, he tried all night. He was a professional fisherman. All night caught absolutely nothing. I'm sure he's frustrated but yet Jesus shows up, takes the ordinary, and makes it sacred. He uses a simple fishing boat and an experience in the life of Peter, and he's setting things up for a mighty miracle. And everything that happens here does not happen by chance. God's teaching us some important truths here. And so the truth I see right here is this. God still prepares us for his call by allowing us to endure personal failures. He allows us to go through hard times, personal failures. And when we do, we start wondering, where is God? What is he up to? Why are you so mean? We don't get it. 
And yet God's allowed these things to happen to get our attention, maybe to stop us from heading down a road that's going to hurt us and hurt others, to get our hearts soft and ready, to break us so that we're ready to respond to what he has next for us. And we see that here. He changes lives in totally unexpected ways through daily obedience and the small things when you admit that you need him. When you admit that you need him, until our sense of need for him, we will not be ready to follow him. If you think you're self-sufficient, you're a, you're a self-made man, self-made woman, then you're not going to think you need Jesus. We've got to be stripped of our self-confidence, our sinful pride, before we can be greatly used of God. I've heard great Christian leaders say, if God wants to use a man or a woman greatly, he'll break them greatly so he can use them greatly. Peter must be broken before he's ready to respond to the call of Christ. And then we see he changes lives again through obedience. You see this theme here? Obedience is key. It's everything. He's changing lives through obedience, not only in small things, but he changes lives when we obey him, even when it doesn't make sense. Second part of verse 5. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. I mean, Jesus told him, hey, put back out in the deep and we'll catch some fish. Jesus is promising that if Peter will obey, he'll catch fish. But Peter just spent all night, he's a professional fisherman, catching nothing. So I'm sure he was kind of having a hard time believing what Jesus just said. But we learned some things here too. God never gives foolish commands, even though they might look foolish at the time. God has not put in his word things that we think are foolish. You know, we think there might be foolish. We don't understand them. But God put them in there for a reason. He's God. He knows what's best. and has a reason for it. We see here that God intends to bless those who obey him without hesitation. Now, let's be honest. If I was Peter, I would have doubted that too. Are you kidding me? We were out all night fishing. This is what we do for a living. I could see why Peter was skeptical. I'd be telling Jesus, hey, Jesus, we've been doing this for a living. We're the experts. And we tried, and it didn't work. We tried, and it didn't work. Now comes the time for Peter to, quote, fish or cut bait, right? He's got to obey or cut bait. He needs to fish or cut bait. And I I love the way Peter put it. Peter said, because you said so. He had his reasons for not believing him. He didn't feel it, was doubting it. But because you said so, I'm going to let down the nets. King James Version, nevertheless, at thy word. We're going to let down the nets. And across the centuries, believers have said the same thing to God when he gave them marching orders. I mean, conditions may be dark, and there's there's conflict and division among pastors and churches and countries, and the world's fighting against us at every turn. And circumstances may overwhelm us, and our fears nearly overtake us. In the midst of all that, God still speaks to his children. And his children need to say, because you say so. I know what the world's saying about your word. I know what the, Lord, I know what the world is saying about all this stuff. And the experts of our day are saying about your word, about what you say about this. But because you say so, we're going to obey. We're going to obey. I mean, from the very beginning, Abraham was asked to pick up, go to a land he's never been, didn't tell him what he was going to do. And he set off across the desert with no more than this. God, because you said so. Noah built an ark in an unbelieving world with no more than because you say so. 
Moses defiled, I mean, a slave defiling Pharaoh with no more than because you say so. Joshua marked around Jericho day after day with no more. And to the world, it made no sense. He did that with no more than because you say so. We see here Peter lets down the net with no more than because you say so. Because you say so. I grew up in church my entire life. My mom took me, made sure I stayed in church. And you know, I've heard my story, but it just reminds me here of how God worked in my life. 12 years old, sixth grade, teenager, hardest time of my life. I'm sitting in church, minding my own business. That's where I was supposed to be. I really wasn't paying attention. But all of a sudden, God put this feeling on me I did not want. You know, and you heard the, the, the call, never heard a voice, never saw anything. Never saw a sign, but God put this feeling in me that I did not want. He was like, I want you to serve me full time in ministry. And I'm thinking, absolutely not. You heard that story. There's no way. There's no way I'm going to do that. It scared me to death. Um, I stayed in church doing what God wanted me to do, though. And I was praying and hoping that feeling would go away, and it never went away. The older I got, the stronger it became. And, and I told God, no way. I, I don't want to be a pastor or minister. I don't want to. I want to decide what I want to do. At the time, as in high school and college, I was painting houses. I had a very successful painting business. I, I want to do what I want to do. I don't want you telling me what you want me to do with my life. And then the second reason, I was just scared to death. Y'all know I have a fear of public speaking. I do. I told God, there's no way I'm going to speak in front of people. I ain't doing it. And then I told him too, I said, I don't feel like I'm good enough. God, are you kidding me? There's other people who are a lot more talented and want to do this. I don't even want to do it. Now, I grew up in the Baptist church down in Tampa that had about 50 people in it. Still the same size to this day. My sister still goes there. And I'm thinking, there's no way I'm going to do it. You got other people qualified. In fact, other people in my life who loved me and cared about me reminded me of that. People who loved me told me that you're just backwards, man. You're shy, you're backwards, which was true. And I remember my youth leader, who I, I, when I told her, we had about six or seven teenagers in the youth group there at the church I grew up in, and our youth leader, who's a volunteer lady, she came up to me, and I told her what I was struggling with in high school about God calling me. I still remember her words to me. Oh, honey, please don't. They'll eat you alive. <laughs> That's actually what she said to me. I still remember it. Oh, honey, don't. They'll eat you alive. And I said, I know. That's why I don't want to. Age 19, first year in college, got involved in the Baptist campus ministry on a college campus, University of South Florida. Could not afford to go to college. My parents couldn't send me. So I commuted back and forth. Kind of put myself through, commuting back and forth. Got involved in the Baptist group there. Went to camp at Ridgecrest Baptist Conference Center, which is in Black Mountain, North Carolina, right outside Asheville, which, by the way, our teenagers, our student ministry, middle school and high school, is going there for camp this year, you know? And my wife and I, we always start vacation in July, and that first week, they're going to be there at Ridgecrest, and so we're going to be there with them at Ridgecrest. It was at Ridgecrest. I'm 19 years old. I'm struggling with this call and feeling of God, and I told God all the reasons why. Ministers are weird. I don't want to do it. All that kind of stuff. And at the age of 19, I was just, it was just me by myself with God on a mountain, 
no feeling, I mean, I mean, no vision, no audible voice. I just told God, but because you said so, I'll do it. I really don't know what that means, and you know I really don't want to, but I can't shake it. You've been confirming it in my life, and because of you calling me to do it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I'm very grateful for that. Never look back. Never regretted it. Never look back. I couldn't, my parents couldn't afford to send me to camp. They couldn't. Didn't have the money. Thank goodness there's people in my church that sent me. I was talking to Pastor Brian. He's our student and uh, young adult pastor. He was telling me this morning, same thing in his life. His parents couldn't afford to send him to camp. The church people helped him go to camp. And God's using both of us today to make a difference. You can help our teenagers. There's many teenagers in our student ministry, and some of their families are like my family. So they don't have the money for that. But you can help send them to camp. So you see there's a brochure in there, uh, uh, and you can see it explains how it works. And you can put money in these envelopes, and it goes to help teenagers go to camp. I took one. This is what it looks like. I took the first one, $1. I'll put $1 in it to send a kid to camp. I just took it. I'll get another one. But uh, don't y'all worry. <laughs> But I want you to think about that. People who did that for me and for him, God used that. That's why I surrendered to the ministry up there, being away from all that stuff, you know, the peer pressure, and just listening to God. God changes lives in totally unexpected ways through daily obedience and the small things when you admit you need him through obedience, even when it doesn't make sense. Even when it doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense for God to call me. But he called me, and I said, because you said so, here I am. But God also changes life by doing your part. You got to do your part. And we see that in verse 6 and 7. When they had done so, see, they did what Jesus said. They caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. They signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so that they began to sink. And by the way, these fundraisers envelopes, they're in the hallway of C building and B building. That's where you can find them, all right? But we see they had to do their part. We still have a part to do. The fish aren't going to jump in the boat by themselves. We still have to do what we have to do. God's greatest miracles usually require our cooperation. You want God to use you, that means you still got to go to work. You want to get healthy, you got you to do what you need to do. Watch what you eat and exercise. You still got to go to that meeting. We still, you still got to do your homework. You want God to change your life, you still need to go to that Christian counselor. You still need to spend time with God reading this word, being disciplined to read his word, let him talk to you, talk to him in prayer. You still have to share your faith, your story with folks. I surrendered at 19 and said, God, because you said so, I'll do it. Even though I don't understand it, it makes no sense to me. I didn't know what to do. Next, nobody in my family was a minister. So I just, I said, I'll just do what I'm supposed to do. I was my first year in college. I'm thinking, what even degree do I get? I'm in a state university. I'm thinking church is people. I know from personal experience that people are messed up. We got issues. And so I finished my degree in psychology. You got a psychology degree from your University of South Florida. Met Nancy through all that, my wife, of over 42 years. And then decided, you know what? I need to go get trained. So I went off to seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. 21 loading everything I own, graduated from college, 21, loaded everything I have in my 1972 Chevy van, hippie van. Y'all heard me talk about it. Everything we own, we've been married one year, put in that van, pulled behind that van, her Subaru, she drove a Subaru, drove it to Fort Worth, Texas, 24 hours. Neither one of us knew a soul in Fort Worth, Texas. Neither one of us had a job in Fort Worth, Texas. 
But we just said, God, because you called us to do this, and we know we need to be trained because I don't have a clue what I'm doing. We picked up, left everything, and followed him. Have never regretted it. Peter, he told Peter, let down the nets. Put your net in deep water. That's important. Why? Deep water is where the big fish are. And yet what we do in church, put our, our pinkies in the shallow water. We're playing the shallow water. That's where the minnows are. There's no risk in that. God put us in the deep water. Put us in over our head. That's where the big fish are. That way we know when you do something, it's you doing it, not me doing it. I, I saw this statement from a pastor, and I, I like what he's saying. He's saying, quote, without God, we cannot. Without us, God won't. Now, we know God can do anything with or without us, but I find that true. Without God, man, we can't do anything, really. You're not going to be able to make a big difference, do what God's called you to do without God. So you got to humble yourself and follow Christ. But without us, God won't. He wants to work with us. He does his part. we got to do our part. And it's not just by ourselves. Look at verse 7. When they got so full, they signaled other guys to come over and help them and filled their boat full, too, to where both boats were about to sink. We got to do our part. God does his part, but then we need others to help us. That's why church is so important. Church family is so important. Discipleship groups are so important. Connect groups are so important. They fished. The fish had always been there. They've been there all night. But with Jesus in the boat, everything changed. He allowed Peter to fail so he could learn what he could do with Jesus' help. And so I summarize that saying empty nets without Jesus, full nets with Jesus. Doesn't it make sense then? Let's go fishing with Jesus every day, every day. He changes lives by us doing our part, but he also changes lives when we see who he is and who we are. Jesus changed lives by seeing who Jesus is and who he is and who we are. Look at verse 8. When Simon Peter <clears throat> saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Interesting. After a great miracle, why would Peter tell Jesus to leave him? Peter saw firsthand who Jesus really is. He really is true and certain. He really is the son of God from heaven. He saw Jesus in a new light. And to see God is to see ourselves as we really are. And sometimes when we realize how holy and just God is, when we realize who Jesus is and what he's done for us and the sacrifice he went through, sometimes that vision, that thought is just too hard for us to handle. And it was for Peter. And he hit his knees. Peter could not stand the contrast between the purity and power of Christ and his own sinfulness. The more we see God for who he is, the more we see ourselves for who we are. And we know we're sinful. Peter is now a man who's been deeply changed on the inside. His pride has been burned away by that transforming vision of Jesus Christ. And so we see another lesson here. When we encounter Jesus, we are never the same again. Never the same again. Nobody can meet Jesus and walk away unchanged. Now, when you meet Jesus, for some of us, it drew us closer to God. And we've never been the same. We put our faith and trust in him. We're trying to follow him the best way we can. There's others, and maybe some of you here today, some of you watching. You heard about Jesus, you met Jesus, but you walked away. You say, eh, not now, don't know. You ignored, you walked away, but now you're changed. You're forever changed. 
In Peter's case, his confession became part of his testimony. He knew he was a sinner. He knew he wasn't ashamed to admit it. And now God, he knows now that God could use a person who admits their weakness, who knows and admits their weakness. And now with his pride stripped away, he's now ready to serve the Lord and follow Christ and do what he's called him to do. So Peter, he was a fisherman by trade. That's what he did for a living. But now he's given a new occupation. Peter will now cast the gospel net. He'll share the gospel, tell the story of Jesus, and catch people for Jesus. How does he do that? By letting go and following Jesus. Jesus changes our life in totally unexpected ways through daily obedience and small things, and even in things that make no sense. When you and I admit that we need him, when we do the part that we're supposed to do, by we see Jesus, who he really is and who we are, and now we let go and we follow Jesus. We see that in verse 10. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. God moved him from where he was to where God wanted him to be. That's always God's method. When he wants to shake up the world, you know what God does? He finds a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, a teenage young person. He finds somebody and begins to shake them up. And when they are shaken up, he now uses them to shake up the world around them, their own friends, their own family, where they live, where they work, the church they're in. I mean, Peter proves the point that God's will is always good for us, but it's not always comfortable for us. And it's certainly not predictable for us. Think about Peter. One day he's catching fish, the next day he's catching men. One day he's on this boat, the next day he's following Jesus Christ down some dusty road. One day he's arguing about where to cast his net, the next day he's arguing with the Pharisees. One day he's washing the fish smell out of his robe, and the next day he's, walk, he's watching Jesus Christ do miracles by raising people from the dead. God's will can mess up your life. God's will will mess up your life, but in a good way. In a good way. I thought God was messing my plans, and he was messing my plans up. I did not want to go down that path. No way. I had many reasons. I was justified in saying what I said, too. It made sense. But God had different plans, and he messed up my life, but he did in a good way. Never go back. Never go back. Peter went from a night of struggle, right, to a morning of surrender, to a tomorrow of satisfaction and surprise and life change. The same thing will happen to us. When you and I respond to Jesus' call, God, Christ's call in our life, he changes us. And then he changes our personal agenda. And as we take, decide to take Jesus seriously, he'll do something with us we never even thought was humanly possible. He will put you way in over your head. And every Sunday when you see me up here, you should see that. I'm a perfect example of that. You didn't. You didn't see me grow up. You didn't know me when I was just a kid. But people that saw me knew me as a kid growing up. 
When they know I do what I do now, they cannot believe it. And I tell them, man, I'm exactly, you're exactly right. I can't believe it either. God will put you way in over your head. Now, I don't mean to suggest that everybody must give up their career to follow Jesus. Some of you, yes, just like Peter. But for most people, the call of following Christ means going back to work tomorrow morning with a new determination to serve Jesus Christ on that field that he's got you on, where you work, to love people the way he loves them, to serve people the way you serve them. That means for many of you, some of you students, you're going back to school tomorrow. And that means you go back tomorrow determined to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. And you love people. And you look out for those who are being mistreated. And you speak the truth in a loving way, no matter how much pressure comes back. That means for some of you, it means staying right where you are, where God has you, even though it's difficult and you don't want to be there. But that's your mission field for the moment, for the season. And you show him that you're faithful. Now, for Peter and others, following Christ meant leaving the old life, giving up the boats, the nets, the livelihood, and following Christ into an unknown future. You see, letting go must always come first. Anything that hinders our walk with Christ must go. Even some good things in our life must go in order for better things to come. The word here that he followed him, that word followed actually means to walk the same road, to walk the same road. That's what a disciple does. He or she walks the same road as Jesus. And we tell the story. They get on the Jesus road and they follow him wherever it leads. No guarantees, no deals. He or she just simply follows that road every day following their master's footsteps and being changed from within by Jesus and being committed to the mission of Jesus, which is, we see here, his mission is fishing for men. He said, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to catch men. You're going to catch men. I mean, you're going to win people to Christ. You're going to share the story, men and women, boys and girls. You're going to talk to them about Jesus Christ. You're going to cast the gospel net. You're going to tell Jesus' story. You're going to tell your story, how he changed you. And catch people's hearts for Christ. Four things about fishing here. If you're going to fish, if you're a fisher person, mission, fisherman, you got to go where the fish are. You got to go where the fish are. And you know what? That's all around us. You don't have to go very far. Just open up your eyes. The fish are all around us. And I love next week, chapter 5, we pick it up on verse 12. We see Jesus tells us who the fish are. And we see his example of how he loved people who were unloving and the outsiders and who we need to go after. We need, we need to go where the fish are. That's why we do all the different type of ministries we do to draw people, to point them to Christ. B, you got to cast the net. You just can't live a good Christian life in front of them. Oh, he or she's different. Well, yeah, they're different, and you need to be different. And then when you get their attention, you need to tell them why you're different because of Jesus Christ. We've got to cast the net. We've got to share the gospel. We've got to catch men and women's heart. Third thing, important church. You always catch them before you clean them. And yet, in church, we want to clean them before we catch them. But we don't want them in church. Unsaved people will never, they're never going to act like saved people. If they're unsaved, they're just doing what comes natural. Lost people act like lost people. You did. I did. We need to love them through the process and realize change will begin to happen as Jesus starts to cleanse them and change their heart. 
That's what he does. And another thing about fishing, we need to focus on casting the net, not on how many fish we catch. We just share the story. We share the gospel. Jesus saves, we don't. Don't be afraid to follow Jesus Christ. You will never regret starting down that road again. You will never regret starting down that road of following Jesus Christ, but you will regret that you waited too long to do it. So are you ready to follow Jesus Christ wherever he leads? Are you willing to let him work through you to bring life change in somebody else's life? And that's what he wants. And he is worthy. And we come here today to remember that he is worthy, who he is and what he's done and the sacrifice that we has made. And so we come together. The Bible tells us when Jesus got all his 12 disciples together, even in Luke, I think it's chapter 20, he got them together and they had the Lord's Supper together. The Last Supper, Lord's Supper, Eucharist, communion. For them to remember who he is and what he's done and, and the difference he can make in their life. Again, it's symbolic. The bread is symbolic of the body of Christ. The blood is symbolic of the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you're a believer, a true believer in Jesus Christ, you're, you're very welcome to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. Our deacons will be at the different tables in just a moment. I'm going to pray. And when I get done praying, say amen. Then you can just get up wherever you're at. We got tables on the balcony. We got five down here. And you can just come and get your element. Take it back to your seat. And then we'll open it up together and do it together. I just thought it'd be 